reciting the Apostles' Creed each and every week. It's a great reminder. Um, and sometimes we're asked, you know, why do you say it every week? Um, it does remind us, and I'll tell you, it's a great discipleship for our children because they only have to hear it like five times, and they have it memorized. I don't know about you, but memorization doesn't come quite as easy anymore. Uh, but for our children, they're able to hear that, and they know these truths so well. And we're always asked, you know, why does it say Holy Catholic Church? We're not, we're not Catholic. Um, but Catholic here just simply refers to the universal church, that we are part of the one body of Christ. And that is what we celebrate as we gather here, is that we are the body of Christ. And today we're going to be in Psalm 8, so I encourage you, have your Bibles ready and turned. So today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and that's what we're celebrating. It's a day in which we intentionally advocate for the unborn life in the mother's womb. On, uh, on January 13th, 1984, President Ronald Reagan designated January 22nd to be the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And so that truly was just an incredible day where, as a country, we're saying, the unborn child, there's value there. But as we as Christians, we know that the first sanctity of life was not back in 1984, but uh, it's in the first chapter of our Bibles. For when we turn all the way back into Genesis 1, we read that God says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. On the day that humanity was made, formed by the very hands of God, it was deemed valuable and precious because he made us. And he declared that we are made in the very image of God. Now, what we have seen is since that day, since sin has come into the world, since we see Genesis 3 all the way until now, and we will see until the very return of Christ, that there has been an attack on human life. And we see it just throughout the Bible. We see Cain killed Abel. We see Pharaoh killed all the Hebrew male children in the beginning of Exodus. We see throughout the Bible, and we've also seen throughout the ages, that people who, um, out of pagan worship, have sacrificed children to false gods over the ages. Gods like Moloch, which we read in the Bible. And, um, and when we come into the New Testament, we see Herod. Herod killed all the male babies to and under around the birth of Jesus. Fast forwarding to this last century in Germany from 1939 to 1945, 5,000 babies were killed in German hospitals. We'll look at that a little bit more. And if we fast forward right up close to the very present, in 2017, there was 862,320 abortions reported in America that year. That's what happens in America. That's what happens in this world where we see that sin has come and there's an attack on human life. We're particularly just focusing on abortion today. And one thing, I uh, read several articles this week, just reading, just reminding myself of, of just what is happening. And one article said, abortion leads to more death each year than eight prevalent causes of death. More than accidents, so unintentional injuries, more than chronic lower respiratory diseases, more than strokes, more than Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, influenza, pneumonia, nephritis, intentional harm like suicide, all of those combined, adoption or abortion kills more children than those. Another article reported this is just, um, in the United States, 67 to 85% of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. Isn't that incredible? 67 to 85%. It's similar for those with spina bifida. So how does this happen? How, how do we get to a world where we say, that's okay? Where it's largely supported how is it that we are able to determine this child is worthy, this child is not worthy? One of the things that I was just reading and studying this week that just came just to the very surface is that we must deny their humanity. Is that we make them less than human. In fact, uh, so I do not know German, so if someone was, spoke, is Martina here? 
don't see her. I'd have her run up right now and read this word for me. Uh, so I'll just butcher it. So I'm just going to tell you, uh, Lieben son Wurz, Lieben. It's a chilling German phrase that means life unworthy of life. It was coined in 1920 by two German professors, Carl Binding and Alfred Hoke, who thought that people with congenital, mental, and developmental disabilities are a burden to their families and the state, and they contribute nothing. Hoke described such people as human ballast, an empty shell of human beings. He said their lives are unworthy of life, they argued, and it should be permissible to end them. And that is largely what we have seen through abortion and through the advocacy of abortion over the ages. But now, admittedly, not everyone who commits abortion does so because they believe or because they know that the child within them has a disability. Many do so now today as simply a means of maintaining autonomy. Our culture today says a woman, and actually it will say a person because it will not say a woman, But for our sake, we'll say a woman ought to be able to do whatever she wants with her body, even if it means the murdering of the child within her. And so this is our culture, and it's not limited to us alone in the United States. It is what we are seeing throughout the world. And according to God's word, we will see abortion is murder, and abortion is attack on God, for it is the intentional killing of those who are made and formed in his image. Now, I know that there is probably, most likely, with this size gathering that we have here, or those who are listening online, that there is someone here and listening who has had an abortion. And my hope and my goal today is not to heap judgment and guilt upon you. I pray that through the text, you would be moved to repentance, and that you would experience the warm embrace of God's love. My hope for all of us is that we'd be reminded of the supreme worth that God has placed on humanity as we look at his word today. And I pray that we together would resolve to stand firm against abortion and that that in response to this text, that our hearts would be moved to even greater and more passionate worship of our God. Because Psalm 8 is this incredible text, and it beautifully shows the supreme value that God has placed on humanity and why we as Christians would advocate for the protection of the unborn life. So what I want to do is I want to just invite you to stand, and we're going to read Psalm 8. We stand when we read Scripture here. We do so as a means of reminding ourselves that this word is inspired by God. It comes with his full authority. It is for the purpose of equipping, correcting, and training us in righteousness that you and I and every single person here as a disciple of Jesus Christ would be equipped for every work that God has called us to do. So that's why we stand. Psalm 8, follow along. We'll read the whole psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just come to you now. We humbly come. And Lord, I just ask that you, you fulfill the promise that you have given in Scripture. That you say when your word goes forth, you will complete all that you have purposed in it. So Lord, I pray. I pray as we read your word, as we study your word, you accomplish your purpose in us today, that your spirit would work, that we'd be moved to worship, that we'd be moved to awe and to humility, that we'd be moved to repentance, 
that we'd be moved to horror as we think of the sin of abortion. And Lord, I pray that you'd move in our hearts that we would advocate for the unborn child in in whatever various ways that that could look like here. I pray for your grace to be upon, upon us and especially your warm arms of comfort around any who have had abortion. I pray they would see your hope, the life and forgiveness that you offer because of your son Jesus. Lord, we just praise you today. We, we are aware that in the grand scheme of things, we as humans are so incredibly insignificant and so small, and yet you have placed such value upon us. So may we be moved to humility and worship. In your name, Jesus, amen. So I love that we, we, we take a special time to preach on these, but these are just emotional texts. Um, so we're going to jump in, because I feel like if I just keep going, it's easier. Uh, title today, The Significance of, un- of Insignificance. I want you to see it, The Significance of, un- of Insignificance. And the main point, what I want you to see, God uses that which appears weak and insignificant as the means of proclaiming his glory. I just want you to see that. So we're going to begin. The psalm begins with David just praising God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens, about, above the heavens. So, so a good question, when, when a psalm begins in praise, is to say, why? So, so if the psalm begins in praise, then we're going to read, the purpose of the psalm is going to be fleshing out what has moved the psalmist to exalting God, to move his heart to the point that he is praising God. So every time you come across that in the psalms, you should say, why? If it begins with the lament psalm, and he cries out, God, where are you? Go, okay, something's happening that he doesn't see God's, God's present reality, his comfort with him, and so he's praying for that so why would he do that so we always want to come to the text what's happening what is a what is the occasion for this text so he's bursting forth into praise so to answer that we're going to zero in on verse two and and let me just give you a hint into my week so verse two in one sense uh, i was able to get somewhat easily the meaning of and yet i i didn't really know what to do with it do you, ever, do you ever do that when you study God's word? You're like, okay, I think I know what this means. Not sure where to go. And so I really just kind of gravitated to verses 3 and 4 because that's where everyone else gravitates to. You read a commentary, you quickly go to there. You listen to sermons on this text. You quickly go to verses 3 and 4. Um, and so I, I just spent time on Thursday, and I just, I just spent time praying. I go over into one of the little rooms over here, and I just prayed. And I was like, God, I just need wisdom. I feel like there's, there's more here. And so just pray, just pray, God, you give wisdom, you give understanding, so I just, I need help to understand this text. And, and then I went back to studying, and I felt, just as studying, that he just gave clarity in verse 2, and as I understood verse 2, it gave much greater insight to the rest of the psalm. And so I just, I say that for multiple reasons. Uh, one, don't ever think that as pastors, we just go, oh, this is, this is what the text means. It's just easy. Um, for each and every one of us, if we're going to grow in our knowledge of God's word, we're going to have to be depending upon God in prayer. So I just want to encourage you, every time you're digging into the word, pray. Ask for just his divine, sovereign wisdom upon you. Um, so here we go, verse 2. David says, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. Because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avengers. Okay, so babies refers to toddlers, infants refers to those who are nursing. So perhaps, perhaps what is happening here is David is watching a mother and she's nursing at that moment. And then, of course, as many of you nursing moms know, you then have another child running around you, maybe grabbing on to you, saying, Mommy, 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 you know, needing everything at that moment. And, and so he's, he's simply watching this happen right now, and he's just moved to praise. He sees the magnificence of this moment. But he then says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. So the question kind of is, is 
what's he referring to? Like, how does a baby silence enemies and the avenger? Is he referring to just simply how they're created and the beauty of, of the fact that the child automatically knows how to nurse and the mom is able to provide the food? Is that what he's saying here? Is it the innocent cry of the child who's around her? Is it the absolute dependence that the child shows upon the mother that is just uh, innate right there? And that's where it's just kind of, okay, something's happening here. But Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 21. And that's where the clarity for me really came in. So in Matthew 21, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem on what is called Palm Sunday. And do you remember what's happening on that day? There are children running around. And do you remember what they're crying out? Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. And of course, then there's this other group of people called the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and they're not so happy with what is happening. So they come and they basically begin to question Jesus. And in a sense, they're rebuking Jesus. What are you doing? You're going to let these kids say this? And so Jesus says to these experts of the Old Testament, have, have you never read the Bible? He says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. So the way that Jesus silences the enemies is by referring to the very praise that is coming out of these children's mouths. And it's out of the mouths of these children. Their innocence, their praising of Christ that the enemies are silenced. And so, so here's the point. So when you begin to see what David is saying here and you see what Jesus, how he uses this text... The point is, God advances his glory through that which appears insignificant. He, he can silence the enemies through the cries of babies. Because, I mean, to be realistic, there's not a lot more that appears to us as insignificant than the cries and praise of toddlers. I mean, I don't know about you, mom, dad. We often not move to praise when they're crying, are we? Like, oh, God is so good right now. I mean, just the crying, oh, just keep going, babies. And like, we're just moved, we just bow down right there and just worship. We break out our Bibles. We might break out our Bibles, God help. Um, it's, it doesn't seem always like that, but here, David's saying through this picture in Jesus, as he uses Psalm, he says, through the mouths of babies, that which appears insignificant, God uses in the most incredible ways to silence the enemies. And so it's this truth that silences the enemies. It's this truth that moves David to praise, and it's this truth that we see all throughout Scripture. I just want you to think about it. In fact, think about the New Testament version of this verse. 1 Corinthians 1.27 but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Like God, God doesn't rely upon us for his strength. Are you aware of that? Like he doesn't go, oh, I'm so glad I got this guy. Our team is stronger now. He doesn't need you. He doesn't meet, need me to make him stronger. He is infinite in strength. So that's why he can use that which is weak, that which is powerless, that which is frail, that which appears insignificant in the most incredible ways because he doesn't need us to be strong. He is infinitely strong, and that's why he can use us and that which appears weak for the advancement of his purposes. And you see this all throughout the Bible. In fact, one of the, the fun ones is like in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. God reminds Israel, do you, do you know what I chose you? Just in case you forgot why I chose you, let, let me remind you why I chose you. It's not because you're strong. It's not because you're, you're a lot of people. It's not because of all the resources that you have. It's actually because you're weak and you're few and you offer me nothing. That's what he tells me. You're small. That's why I chose you. It's not because of how great you are, because of how little you are. And that's how he establishes his people. God chose David, the young shepherd boy, to defeat the Goliath. Of all the soldiers, of all the people of Israel, he says, you know, I think I'll choose the young shepherd boy to defeat the giant Goliath. God used Joseph, a Hebrew slave in, in the land of Egypt, who was then uh, sold, who was then brought into prison, 
And then through an, an, an array of events that God ordained, brought him to be second in command of all of Egypt, that when the famine came, he wouldn't only save Egypt, but he would also be used to save Israel at that moment. God chooses to use these insignificant people in the grandest of ways. In the New Testament, Jesus calls fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, insurrectionists as the means for the very, to be the apostles who the very foundation of the church would be built upon. He doesn't choose the educated. He doesn't choose the rich, those who already have popularity. He chooses those who have no name to proclaim his name. And of course, the greatest example of all is when we go throughout the Bible and we see how is it that God is going to overcome sin, death, and Satan? How will he defeat the enemies of his people? Through the foolishness of a cross. That's how God will do it. Through the foolishness of a cross. I mean, all throughout God's word, we see how God uses that which appears insignificant in the most incredible ways to advance his purposes. This is why the cries of babies can be used to silence enemies. And as we move on in the psalm, David's going to flesh this truth out. So this is how I picture this psalm working. I picture psalm, David is, is looking at this mother, and, and he's nursing, and she, she's nursing this child. The toddler's running around creating havoc. He's looking and he's moved to this praise and he sees how God uses that which is small. And I'm guessing this might be happening at night. And then he begins to look up at the moon and the stars. And then in verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So he's beginning just to say, I'm looking at all that you have done. The vast creation that you have made. And so I just want to pause for a moment and remind ourselves of the vastness of creation. Now, I am no expert in space and stars and in any of this at all. My son, Caleb, actually educated me a lot this last week, which is kind of scary. Uh, we're sitting at the table, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, yeah, it's this star is the next biggest star. And this is how far it takes to get to here. And did you know about this galaxy and this galaxy? And so I just started writing down notes incredible um so so this is just a little moment we're going to pause and just remind ourselves about our universe remind ourselves david looks up at the sky and he sees moon and stars so what do we see well our closest star is the sun and that is 93 million miles away from us do you realize that that's really far the next closest star is Alpha Centauri, which my son told me. That is 4.37 light years away, which according to current space travel, that would take 81,000 years to get there. My son didn't know that. <laughs> I looked that one up. And that's only the next closest star. Do you know how many stars there are in our galaxy? Our galaxy. 100 to 100,000 million stars. Now, it is believed that the Milky Way galaxy, which is where we live, is just, is roughly 100 to 150,000 light years in diameter. So that's, that's just the width of it. And, and they believe that our galaxy is only one of 150 billion other galaxies. So now, hang on with me, because these numbers, if you're like me, they mean nothing to me. They're just like infinite. You know, I, I can't even begin to conceptualize this. So... Let me, let me help out a little bit. Uh, the known universe is said to be 93 billion light years in diameter. So our known universe, our galaxy is 100 to 150,000 light years in diameter. The known universe is 93 billion, which all scientists will tell you, and it's probably far greater than that. That's just what we have been able to begin to observe. Now, uh, so to help us conceptualize this, let's just say the entire universe, all 100 and 93 billion light years of it, is, as, is taller than the tallest skyscraper in the world. So the tallest skyscraper is, is 2,700 feet. And so we'll just round it up to 3,000, and, and we'll say that's the known universe. Our galaxy, not our planet, not our sun, but our galaxy, if it was standing next to the known universe at 3,000 feet tall, would stand 2 millimeters tall. Isn't that crazy? Like, it's just, it's so incredibly big, the universe that we live in. 
And so, so David is just looking up. But of course, he doesn't know any of these kinds of facts at that time. But the truth is still there. He looks up and he just sees the vastness of all creation, the moon and the stars. And he just realized, we are so small here on earth. We are so incredibly tiny. We are just this, we are like dust on a ball of dust and a galaxy of dust in the midst of this massive creation. And yet, then he goes in, in verse 4, and he says, What is man that you know us? What is the son of man that you care for us? So see, it begins, it begins with this, this small child is used in such significant ways. And now he, now he looks at the grand universe. He says, it's so big, and yet you know that which is so incredibly tiny, and that which is small. Like, do you know that God knows you? And he cares for you? This is like we started off by looking at Psalm 23 during the welcome. We say, you know, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need to fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us in the midst of all things in creation. God is with you. Do you know that truth? He's with you and he cares for you. And the crazy thing is, this just isn't positive thinking. Like, David's not just trying to make himself feel better. He's not having a down day. Ooh, look at everything, and yet you know us. And just kind of staying in, in generalities. But, it, but when we look at God's word, we have evidence after evidence after evidence of God intervening in space and time where he's interacting with humanity. I mean, just as you're reading through the Bible, just let that move you to humility and to awe. That God is sustaining all things, and yet he's interacting with this person and this person, and he's working in this situation. Things like, like God makes covenants with men, like Abraham, like Isaac, with Jacob, with David. And, and, he, and he speaks to messengers called prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and all these guys. And he speaks with them, and he gives them a message, and he sends them to a specific people that they would share that message. God involves himself in the, in the exodus, and when Israel comes to the Red Sea, he parts the Red Sea. So he's working in, in a specific time, in a specific space. In history for the good of his people. Then we see it later when he brings down the walls of Jericho. And we see it also when he makes the moon and the sun. He will hold the cosmos still during a battle in Joshua 10 when Israel's fighting the Am Amorites. Isn't that incredible? And why does God do this? Is, is it because when God looks at us, he goes, wow, they're so awesome. They're just amazing. I, I look at you and I'm just dumbfounded at how amazing you are. Is that, is that where he's moved? No, in fact, in fact, the words, son of man and man, are used to, to reveal more of our frailty than our power and significance. And, and the context tells us this isn't what David is doing. He's not saying how great man is. He's saying this is insane. Look at how big the creation is and yet God knows us. He walks with us. He makes covenant with us. He redeems us. No one stares into the vastness of the sky. No, no one goes out to the, to the brink of the ocean, to the cliffs upon an ocean, and looks out over the vastness of the ocean. Or no one goes to the base of Mount Rainier or even bigger, Mount Everest. And they look up and they go, wow, I'm incredibly huge. Like, that's just foolish. That's what David's doing at this moment. He looks at it all. And he's just moved to go, you, you know us? You're mindful of us? So here's the point. God has specifically chosen man in all of creation to uniquely share in his glory. More than galaxies and planets and stars, mountains, oceans, birds, lions, elephants, or anything else in all of creation. He uniquely has chosen you and me and humanity as the means in which he will share his glory with. You see David's train of thought? You begin to trace it now. It starts with him looking at the significance of a toddler, of an infant. And the beauty of the praise and the voice that comes from this child. 
And it moves him to think about that truth, how God uses small, insignificant things in incredible ways, and moves him then to look at the star to the greater truth that God has always worked this way, and he uses humanity in the most significant of ways. And in verses 5 through 8, he begins to flesh that out. He's going to bring us right back to the time of creation. And he wants us to see how God has always loved and always cared for humanity. So he's going to give us four truths about humanity. And we're just going to kind of rattle through them. Number one, God made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. Number two, God crowned us with glory and honor. Number three, God gave us dominion over his works. Number four, God put all things under our feet. And if you want to know what all things are, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds, fish of the sea, Whatever passes along the sea, he says, Every, everything you see. Everything you see, I put under your rule. What's David doing? Why is he doing this? He's reminding you and I that we're made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God has nothing to do with our hands and our feet our nose and our eyes. If you ever wonder about that, I mean, in John 4, 24, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, and he says, God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. He didn't look at himself and say, well, I have hands, therefore children, or therefore we need hands. So, So being made in the image of God means far more than just our hands and our feet and those kind of things. And when we're in the creation narrative and we're looking at Genesis 1 or even here as, as David is reminding us that we're made in this image, we're given a hint about what that looks like. See, being made in the image of God is to be crowned with glory and honor. It is to be made to rule over all of creation. It is made to represent the very rule of God here on earth. You see, man is a picture of God's rule in creation. So when we see one another, we're reminding ourselves of the very rule of God. We're reminding ourselves of God's goodness. We're reminding ourselves of how God cares for everything. That's how we are to care for everything. And to be made in the image of God is to be in this relationship with God where he supremely rules, and yet he has chosen us to rule underneath him. So there's this relationship that we have with God. But he has crowned us with glory and honor. In fact, humanity would be the crowning glory in all of creation, which again, just let that remind you, the, the vastness of all of creation, and yet we are dust on a ball of dust and a galaxy of dust in the midst of this creation, and we're the crowning glory. Nothing because of what we do, all because of how we've been made by God. So let's just stop now. We're just going to pause. We're going to begin to think, how does this truth affect and inform and impact the way we think about life in the womb? What we've seen so far is that in all of creation, the vastness of everything, God loves and gives special attention and care to humanity. In fact, we're told in Psalm 139, That God is the one who forms every single child in the womb. Do you know that? Every child. You were formed in the very womb of God. Personally knits each and every person together. Now why does he do this? Because we share in his glory. Because he has chosen to make us in a very unique way that we would stand out in all of creation. And so when we begin to think about abortion, we see how abortion resists the very purposes of God. We see how abortion attacks the very image of God and thus attacks God himself. We see abortion places us in the very position of God that we would be the ones who determine who is worthy and who is not worthy, who is significant and who is not significant to have life. Abortion says your value comes from what you will contribute to this world. Abortion says only that which is significant should have life. And those are lies. Those are lies that the world believes, that all around us is supported, 
But abortion defies the very way that God works. I mean, when we come to the psalm, we see that God uses that which appears small, foolish, and weak, and insignificant in the most incredible of ways. God uses the cries and the praise of babies to silence enemies. God uses small, weak, frail humanity as the means of revealing his rule in this world. What we see all throughout God's word is the healthy person is no more valuable than the one who was born with Down syndrome. The person with all of his parts is not more valuable than the one who is missing parts. Our value is not tied to performance. Our value is not tied to appearance. The very things that abortionists would say, because of these things, this child is not worthy. God is saying, those have nothing to do with your value. You are supremely valuable because I have made you in the very image of God. And that is not based upon physical appearances, which is what we in our sinful humanity are drawn to. Our value comes from the very creative fingers of God who knits us together and declares us significant. And the crazy thing is, when we look through God's word, he uses the healthy and the sick. He uses the weak and the strong, the abled and the disabled in the most incredible ways to advance his glory all the time. So we ought to fight for the life of every unborn child because they're precious in God's sight. Because we rightfully see things. John Calvin said, there's two things, there's two types of knowledge. There's knowledge of God, there's knowledge of man. You will only understand man, he says, when you have a right knowledge of God. When we have a wrong knowledge of God, we will always misunderstand how we view ourselves and our role here on earth. But only once we first come and understand who God is, then we understand who humanity is. And that's the same thing that Proverbs says, right? The beginning of knowledge is what? The fear of the Lord. A right understanding of God. We understand because of God's word that every human is valuable, made in the image of God, and we represent his rule and his power and his glory. Every child. In the womb and out of the womb does this. So we can ask the question, and we know the answer. So why, why does abortion exist? It exists because of sin. Sin is giving the glory that is due to God to anything other than God. And abortion is certainly not the only sin, but it's just the sin that we're kind of bringing and focusing on today. Because of sin, we want to glorify ourselves. We want to do what we want to do, right? We want sex and pleasure, but we want no consequences. We want children, but not the ones that will make our lives inconvenient, which, I mean, just the irony of that, right? Like, if you have a child, you know life is different, right? Grand and beautiful and wonderful, but definitely not convenient, right? We want a life that makes much of us. We, we want to sit on the comfortable thrones of the kingdoms that we build and we want them acknowledged and we want them revered. See, abortion is the inevitable result of a sin-filled world. Abortion is the natural consequence of what happens when we place ourselves in the position of God. And we say, no, you're not the one who determines what's significant. You're not the one who determines what is real and what is not real. I do that. I determine what is valuable and what is not valuable. And you know, you know what the irony of abortion is? One of the ironies is, see, abortion testifies that there are some people who are strong, and there's others who are weak. Abortion testifies that there are some, as humans, that we would say are significant, and there are others that are not. Abortion says there are some who are wise, and there are others who are not. But you know what abortion does in God's eyes? Do you know what it testifies? It testifies to our sinfulness. It testifies of our depravity. 
It reveals that we are his enemies and that we deserve wrath. It doesn't highlight our wisdom and strength at all. It, re- it highlights our foolishness and our weakness. Abortion testifies that because of sin, we actually don't perfectly image God. That we are broken and tainted image bearers. I mean, the glory designated for humanity has not become a reality because of because instead because of sin human history is littered with death and wreckage and destruction apart from the grace of god man is not reaching the glory that he was created for rather than we actually live in a subhuman type way and what's crazy is when we look at what does god do What does God do because we sin? What does God do because we reject him? We try to thwart his purposes. He sends his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. And we're we're about to start uh, Hebrews in two weeks. So first week of February, we are reading Hebrews. So your homework is to read Hebrews a lot. Just read it, and then when you're done with it, repeat, and then repeat, and then repeat, because we're going to be in it for a while. But so the, the, the... Hebrews applies this psalm to Jesus, and he says, do you you know the reality of this psalm? Jesus is the ultimate son of man. Jesus is the ultimate one who has been made a little lower than the angels. Jesus is the one who has come that he would suffer and die on a cross so he'd pay the penalty of our sins. He came to pay the debt that we owe. He came to suffer in the place of the thief, the liar, the cheat, the murderer, and the abortionist. And although, and although all of humanity is weak, sinful, and enemies of God, Jesus comes to rescue us. Isn't that incredible? That's what God does. As our sin highlights our weakness, highlights our foolishness, Jesus comes to save us. And the only way we will ever fulfill our destiny that God has created us for, to, to share in his rule and glory, is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way, because Jesus saves us, makes us a part of a new, redeemed humanity, that we'd be made new in the image of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would live like him, so that we would love like him, so that now here on this earth, we would represent him on this earth. A day is coming when Jesus will return and we who know him will be fully made like him so that we will dwell for all of eternity, new heavens, new earth, where there is no sin, where there is no abortion, there's no murder, there's nothing of injustice at all, but only those who perfectly reveal the very glory of God. That is the mission that Christ has come and the only means in which we have to actually share in that rule to be saved is through Jesus Christ. Christ. I just want you to think about the irony again of that. Remember how big the cosmos is? And yet Jesus comes to earth to save us from our sins. He doesn't save the angels who sin. Do you realize that? He doesn't save them. He's chosen specifically humanity as the means of revealing his glory. You and me. Not because we're significant. Not because we add anything to his team. But because he has formed us. And he gives us great significance by his grace. If you look back, um, so here's, well, here's the point of that. The cross of Jesus Christ testifies to the supreme value that God places on humanity. So if you ever doubt, why is it that we support the unborn child? Why is it that we support all child? We go back to the cross. The cross, above anything, reminds us of God's supreme love for humanity. And when we go back to Psalm 2, we are, we're, we see our, our, when we go back to Psalm, we look at how it begins and ends. We see it begins and ends with praise. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The fact that God cares for us, The fact that God saves us and redeems us and knows us and all of the cosmos doesn't fill David with arrogance, but humility and worship. It just moves him to praise God. And that's my prayer for us. 
is that the first thing that this psalm would do would just move us to worship, that we'd be reminded that God knows us, he cares for us, he's mindful of us, he sent his son Jesus to save us so that we would know him and be in relationship with him. So I pray that we would praise God because in his infinitude, he chooses to come to earth and to save humanity. Um, so let me just give a few things that we can do in response, I think, to this psalm with regards to, to the topic of abortion. Uh, number one, we must praise God. We must praise God that he's mindful of humanity. I think we need to regularly remind ourselves of that, that every day we just praise God. We're not looking at ourselves and saying, I am great. No, we praise God that he made us out of grace and formed us in his image. Number two, we must remember that every person is made in God's image. We need to do that. Every person. We are valuable not because of what we do, not because of what we look like. We're valuable because we share in his glory. So I just want to encourage you, and sometimes we don't do that, especially when we get upset with people or people that hold different positions than we do, whether politically or socially, sexually, um, or regarding with the topic of abortion. We can begin to villainize condemn people we can begin to see them as less than humanity but let us remind ourselves that we're all made in god's image we need to remind ourselves that that every person is made in the image of god we're tainted it's twisted because of sin but we're made in his image number three we must plead with every person who seeks to commit abortion i encourage you we must tell them the life of the unborn child, the value of the unborn child. We must show them the resources that are available, like Options Pregnancy Care Center and so many others. And we must be willing to walk with them in those trials. We must be able to walk with them in these decisions through the birth and after the birth, helping them and resourcing them, coming alongside. So let us be positioning ourselves in, in those places with those people who are considering abortion. And let's begin interacting with them not condemning them but pleading with them telling them the good news of jesus and we must be gentle that's number four we must be gentle and compassionate on all who have had abortion and that's why i say there's there's someone here i know that has had abortion our goal is not to to condemn but to show the very grace and comfort that our god has and we need to model that So when we come across those who have had abortion, we need to realize sin is wickedly deceptive, isn't it? We have all sinned. And we all can look back on sins that we've done and we go, how did I do that? What was I thinking? Sin is wickedly deceptive. It will justify the worst of decisions. And so we need to realize that. We need to realize what sin will do. And so we come with gentleness and grace just as God has saved us. And when we were his enemies... He gives us grace, so we give grace to all. We must rest in God's supreme justice. He is the one who will punish all who continue to persist in their support of abortion. It's not our job to bring punishment on them. It is not our job to bring judgment and hell upon them. If their sins are not forgiven here on this earth, just as the same for any person, we know justice will not escape the eyes of God. Everyone will stand before God one day and they will either be declared righteous because they've received the grace of Jesus and his righteousness upon them or they will be declared guilty because they have rejected God. And so we can rest in that day. We can rest that there is a day abortion will come to an end and it will no longer persist. Number six and the last one and the most important is we must pray. We need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves that we would be courageous and that we would stand firm against abortion and that we'd be willing to speak. And we need to pray for the hearts of those who are thinking about abortion. And we need to be praying for the hearts of those who are committing abortions. And we need to pray for our politicians and those who create laws that would seek to justify abortion. We need to pray. We need to realize that man is not ultimately in control. We read in Proverbs that the ways of man, that his thoughts are like water in God's hand, that he is the one who turns it. And so let us pray for God. Let's pray to God for man, that he would change hearts. And let us not think that that's just a Hail Mary prayer. But let's remember we're coming to the God who loves humanity. 
We're coming to the God who loves you and me, who knits every child in the womb. Let's pray that he changes hearts. So let's pray, and then we are going to take of communion this morning. And we will celebrate through communion that God saves weak and insignificant humans in the most powerful and gracious of ways through the death of his son, that we would share in his rule and glory. Let's pray. Our Father, Father, we just come to you now in absolute humility, realizing how small and weak we are, realizing that we know there's nothing we do that deserves us honor and glory. It's all by grace. All by grace that you have made us and formed us in your image. May we May we rightfully see who we are and may we be moved to humility and then moved to worship that you know us and that you care for us and that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. And may we be heralds of that news through our actions, through our words, and every day that we live. May we plead with every person we know that they would know the grace of your son Jesus. And may we love those who are wrestling with abortion. May we love those. May we come alongside them. May we plead with them that they would see the value of humanity that you have placed on it. And may they come to know you and believe in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray for organizations like like CareNet, like Options Pregnancy Care Center. We pray that you bless them, that you give them wisdom, that you would, fl- that you would give great flourishment to those organizations, and that they would have massive impacts on our society. May we seek to see how we can be creatively involved in those organizations, whatever that looks like. So Lord, we just pray. We pray to you that you would change the hearts of people, of doctors, of politicians who are thinking right now of abortion. And Lord, may we as a church stand firm against abortion. May we stand firm for the life of every child born and unborn. And may we do so because you are worthy of all glory and honor and you have declared us precious in your sight. And Father, as we take communion now, may it be an act of worship that we do. May we do so in worship realizing that the only reason we have value is because you have made us and declared us worthy. In your name, Jesus, amen.